In this episode, we're going to talk about training. I often get a lot of questions, have throughout the years. This isn't the first time I've addressed this subject, just the first time on this podcast. We're going to look at ways you can find training. Is the cost really worth it? What type of instructors are available out there? How do we evaluate and validate where we're getting our training? What's right for us? What's the best fit? What fantasies do we have about it? And a whole lot of other common things that we look for. We'll try to avoid all those common pitfalls and things that are sending us down the wrong path. And how do we find the best places to get the most for our money and get the education that we're looking for? So training, that's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. The year is 2021. Happy New... Well, we won't say that. I think uh, we did pretty good. We made it five days. Then it got a little out of hand. Your trial period is over. You cannot get a refund. I was really hoping to have some new stuff ready to go as far as aesthetic value and things I've been wanting to do, but I wasn't able to get them done. It's been a long, interesting week. I just kind of delayed this to see what was going on and all the weird conspiracies and kind of admire the amount of hope that some people still have. Not that you shouldn't have hope, I just think some of it's misplaced. Now, training's a big subject. I've talked about it before. I'm going to hit a few key points to kind of help people out to generally answer most of the questions I get, which have to do with the way questions get asked these days. What is the best? That's typically how questions go. What is the best training for this? What is the best instructor for this? And I'm not sure that that's a fair question, but I'm still going to give it a shot. But before we begin, I'm going to answer a question I got a couple weeks ago. Somewhat related to training, actually. This one, I'll actually read the whole email. This is from Ty, college student. Starts off by saying, hello, I'm currently a college student. Trying to get into the military reserves. Do you feel there's any benefit from doing it part-time, being being in the military part-time? Due to circumstances in my life, I'm unable to commit to full-time. I'm really into the gray concept and listen to the podcast rigorously. So I just want to ask you for your opinion on the reserves and how I can make up for the skill gap I will not have from not getting the full experience of being a full-time soldier. Well, Ty, I'll tell you and anybody else listening, I am not as fluent on the guard or reserves as I need to be to answer this question, but I do have some knowledge and friends that are there. So I will give you my advice. First thing is there's two people you should talk to if you can find them. One you can definitely find. But the first one is anybody you know personally or associate with that was in the military, especially if they were in the Guard or Reserves, or have direct knowledge as of right now. Like, I got a buddy who's in the Guard. I got a buddy who's in the Reserves. To give you an understanding, I'd say more specific to current life. The other one, of course, is going to be that recruiter. One of the things I want to point out is you mentioned they're having a skill gap from not being full-time. I don't think that's a fair statement. Depends on the job. You may not be aware of this, but in some branches, I don't know that it's all of them, there are certain jobs that only exist in the Guard or Reserve Forces due to the fact that they're not needed full-time. They tend to get activated when they're needed. But just so you're aware, that's not necessarily the case. I don't know that this is true for everybody, there's plenty of people I have known and do know that are in the Guard or Reserve that their job for the military 
is complementary or exactly the same in the outside world. For example, guy I know, he's a prison guard, works in a penitentiary, and he is also a military policeman. So they complement each other. And he had, he had a good career, good job. He wanted to get in the military. He went in the National Guard, became a military policeman, and used that experience to get the job at the prison. And he loves it. So you got to remember that there's not necessarily a skill gap. There are some benefits to being part-time. It has to do with depending on what your job and career field is, time with family. What I will say is the big part is you saying you don't have full time to commit. You mentioned the reserves. I would definitely say also look into the guard. Make sure you understand the differences between the two, how they're funded, where do you train, where's your unit at, where's the main headquarters element. There's people in reserve units that are in one state and their main headquarter unit could be two or three states away. That's entirely possible. Doesn't mean you have to travel there. That may not be the case. I'm just saying the higher ups, as we'd say in the chain of command, that aren't that high may be pretty far away. I don't think the guard really has that issue, but you would probably have to travel through the state depending on where you live in the state and where your guard unit is. Something to consider, though, about time. I'll use the Army's example, as that's my direct knowledge. If you were to join the Army Guard Reserve, you'll have to go to basic training. Okay, that's just over two months of your life. As it stands, I believe it's still nine weeks long. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be gone for nine weeks. You need to plan to be gone for three months. The reason why is you'll go to an AG unit beforehand. Well, you'll be there for a few days. You'll get uniforms and gear and a little handbook they give you, and they'll teach you some basic what we call customs and courtesies and how to behave. And depending on how many people are there and what's going on and when your cycle of all that goes, you could be there for two or three days. You could be there for a week. Then when you go to your basic training unit, it depends on when the cycle starts, meaning the training cycle when I went to basic training, I was what's called a hold under for two weeks, meaning I was in basic training. I was in my unit, but for the first 14 days, they taught us things, but it wasn't on the training schedule. The official training didn't start for two weeks, and that's because there's all kinds of units training. There's materials you have to get from places to train with, and there's a schedule and how much is available. There's land you have to use, like rifle ranges. People schedule those fall out. You need to make sure that you can get there on time. They can't just make things happen all of a sudden. So you could be a hold under. Now, after that, you're going to have to go to your school, which in the Army is called AIT. That is your school for your MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, where you will learn your job. Depending on the job you sign up for, your school could be four or five weeks long, or it could be a year. So you need to make sure when you look up this information on your own, but talk to your recruiter, you need to understand how long is basic training and how long is my school. Now, if they tell you your school is 16 weeks, as an example, four months long, treat it like I just said about basic training. Don't think of it as 16 weeks. Think of it at least five months. Some of the same reasons apply. What type of training is it? When is the scheduling? How early are you showing up before the cycle starts? Then what federal holidays are there? So if you're training over the summer and you're counting on 16 actual weeks and you're training over 4th of July, which is a four-day weekend, whether you get to go home or not, which you never know, that's going to be a shorter week. So if they tell you it's 16 weeks of training, what that means is it's 16 times 5. It means it's about 80 days of training. could be plus or minus one or two. So you have to balance that against what other days are not available due to holidays or other situations, not to mention 
when you show up. When does training start? So if you've got nine weeks of basic training, and we'll say 16 weeks of AIT, that sounds suspiciously like 25. I would suggest to you, it's probably more like 28 or 29. So you need to be aware of that. That becomes a factor because whatever your situation is about how much time you have available that you can't commit, this might be a huge impact. So you need to know that that might change the situation right away. Another thing too is to understand that you get skills. It doesn't matter if you're guard, reserve, or active duty. Everybody goes to basic training and then they go to their school. After that, you go to your unit. So if you're guard or reserve, you'll go sign in that unit. You'll meet whoever your leadership is, get told everything they need to tell you. Here's where our training is. Here's what you need to have. That's just everyday life and active duty. That's the only real difference is, yes, you're full-time. But everything leading up to that unit, everybody goes through the same stuff. So you'll be gone just as long. You'll have the same amount of training as them. Now, there are benefits to active duty. In some situations, in some jobs, and not always just because of the job, it could just depend on the unit you're in or the leaders that you're with on how much additional training you get, how much time they spend with you, how much you're really doing that job. Those are things you learn as you go, and you'll find that in some situations it does matter based on whether or not you're guard or reserve. A lot of times it's based on money and training time available, what your units schedule in. You show up on a cycle that's not training and where you're doing post-cleanup, that's just part of normal life on active duty. Guard reserve probably won't see that too much. Guard and reserve can get called up for things that active duty won't, like natural disasters, especially with the National Guard. Active duty tends to deploy more often. Reserves deploy too, and so does guard overseas. Make sure you look that up. So if you know that you want to be in, say, the reserves, whatever branch, find out what the unit is local to you. You can look up on the internet and see if they've ever deployed and when and where. Another thing you can do is also try to go and meet some of those peoples at those units. Sometimes they will meet with you and talk to you and give you some information on that. Your recruiter can give you some information. They're trained to do that. But part of it's going to be what their job was. Because very few people, if any anymore, are solely only recruiters. They typically started out as something else. And they get put on recruiting duty as part of their career progression for a few years. So if you go to meet a recruiter, and your recruiter's an infantry guy, and you're looking at, say, military intelligence, and they have a military intelligence guy over there, I'm not saying your recruiter shouldn't be the infantry guy, but I should definitely say you should ask them, do you have anybody here that worked in one a related field that I could at least talk to them a little bit about what it was like? The more information you have ahead of time, the better off you'll be. There are tons of benefits you can get. I mean, one example is people that have career fields that they're into, that they love in civilian life, but they also want to serve. So they do their part-time duty, but continue their main job. That's a huge benefit. You don't get that on active duty. You do get the training everybody else gets. There are opportunities for other schools. A lot of ways, it's probably not as many as opportunities as it seems like. But then again, in an active duty unit, it's not like school's available for everybody for the same class all the time, and there's a lot more competition. So if you get on a base that has 30,000 soldiers, and they only have two five-day classes a month for a specific small school, not all 30,000 people are trying to go there, but thousands of them are, or units are trying to send them there, there's a lot more competition. So it just depends on what that training is going to be. There are benefits to college as far as education or college funds or college payback programs. Those fluctuate and change often. That's something you want to ask your recruiter about, but all this information you look up online. All I'll say is it's an honorable profession. I don't think you necessarily lose out 
I do believe that in general, the military is what you make of it. Everywhere you go, people are going to tell you how great it is and how bad it is. People are going to tell you this guy's a shit bag and this guy's a great soldier, but the best thing you can do is make up your own mind. Take advantage of the opportunities. Treat it like a job. You're getting paid to do something. Do it well. Try to advance. Try to get paid more. Try to progress through the system like any career. If you treat it that way, you should be okay. Now, if you or anybody else has questions on that, please shoot me another email and I'll do my best to address them. That being said, expounding more on training. I do get questions a lot and have throughout the years and I've done YouTube videos on them a long time ago, which I know for people who have tried to watch them, they're painful because the intro is going to be 20 minutes long and some of the shows are two, three hours and they don't always stay on track. So I thought I'd go ahead and do this one. I was actually going to read an article I wrote and try to break it down, but that's going to be really long. So I'm going to possibly do another training podcast another time. But having been trained in a lot of things, both civilian and military, I'll give you my advice based on my experiences. I think a lot of people will agree with this. Most of this is going to be geared towards the specifics of the questions I've been asked, which a lot of them have to do with preparedness subjects like food and water preservation and homesteading, firearms training, tactical training, medical training, trauma, medical first aid, regular stuff all these types of things. But you will find that I think most of this will generally translate to any industry. Some of it may require more title or specific translation, but I think it's generally going to hold true for most subjects. You just have to remember that training is a form of education, which typically means that you're paying for it. Now, I will tell you, this is something to know, especially for our veterans out there. With the subjects I'm talking about, a lot of it's not treated dissimilar from college in the sense that there are places that provide these types of training the GI Bill will cover. There's not many of them, but there's survival schools that take GI Bills, survival and bushcrafting courses. There's several out there that do. I imagine there are in other areas. So that's something to look into. One of the things to first look at is what fantasy you, ha you have about what you're doing and to try to look at things logically to make the most sense. Remember that... It's not as intentional as, say, McDonald's. But places you pay to train are businesses. They are in the business to make money. Some of them are in the business to make a lot of money. Some of them need to make money to survive, but that's not their main focus. But they're in the business to make money. Which means anything you see on it is a form of advertising. It doesn't mean it's malicious advertising. It doesn't mean it's advertising meant to manipulate you or lie to you to get your money. But it's advertising. They're advertising their business to get people in to sell them a product or service, and to make their customers happy and to get repeat customers. That's what any business does. So just remember that. It's a business, number one. My first or additional recommendation will be to look at reviews because typically these companies are going to have some sort of website. They'll advertise the training classes that they have, how much they are, a little bit about what's going on. And in some places, people can give reviews. Treat reviews like Amazon but more cautiously. There are plenty of companies out there, even veteran-owned companies of products and services that I purchase and enjoy and love that can have thousands of reviews and never have any one or two-star reviews, which is mathematically impossible. It's because they control those reviews and they only put up the positive ones. That's a business decision. You can call it shitty, you can call it good business, doesn't matter. Just be cautious about those reviews. More importantly, though, who's writing them? 
you know, what is this person's knowledge experience in this field of training and experience that I have that makes their review hold enough water for me to consider it credible? People tend to praise things that they're excited about. You're excited about this new thing. You've already put some money into it. This training sounds really cool. You go there, you have a good time, you learn some stuff. It's really great. So what do you do? You give it a positive review. That all sounds good, but who is that guy? You don't know. So if they're a person with no experience, no exposure, it's not hard to impress them. So I'm not saying that it's not a valid review. I'm just saying take it with a grain of salt and be careful with reviews. Focus more on the cadre, the staff, the trainers, the instructors. Those are the people training you, not the guy who wrote this five-star review. That's why I say cautious with the reviews. Your focus should be on the people that are going to be there teaching you this skill and set of knowledge. When you're looking at a class, you want to go take a class, and let's say you want to learn how to use a tourniquet. There's a lot of people out there have classes that teach you how to use a tourniquet. Some do classes on the basic IFAC. Some do trauma medicine. Some do just basic stop the bleed courses where they focus not only on the tourniquet, but a couple basic trauma items for traumatic arterial bleeding. Okay. Those are all good things. They're not always teaching the exact same things and they come with different prices. The question is, what is your real focus on what you want to learn and why do you want to learn that skill? Answering those questions can help you narrow down where you want to take that course. And this is aside from the obvious things like geography. You know, there's a course I want to take. It's 1,500 miles away. I can't afford to travel there. Yeah, it's off the table. But if you can travel four hours and this other class is 30 minutes away, yeah, it's nice that the other one's closer. That doesn't mean this class you want to take. So you want to know, here's a skill I want to learn. Why is it important to me to learn this skill? What do I want to get out of this class? And that can help you narrow down between your options of what classes you want to take. Again, going back to advertising, they write down a description of this class and this training and say, here's what the class is about or what you're going to learn. They're all probably going to say what the class is about, but it's better when they say, here's what you're going to learn. It's almost like a guarantee that you're going to learn it. It means we're definitely talking about these subjects. It's even better if they tell you to come prepared by having pre-course work or read ahead this or read this article or go check out these books or watch these videos. And you can always do those on your own, but it's, it's nicer to have the professional instructor suggest things to you because what that should tell you is they're saying these are things that they're endorsing. They may not endorse the company, but they're endorsing the information as complimentary to what they're teaching you and that it's valid and a good stuff. So that's even better in the description. Another thing though is where the fantasy comes in. The fantasy usually is surrounded by who the instructor is. We see this a lot from people that want to go train with former members of the military, special special operations world, as though they are these gods. Now, arguably they are, but what is it you're learning? So for example, if you get your first firearm and let's say you, you bought a handgun, you bought some bullets, you shot at the range a little bit, perhaps you took an NRA course or maybe you even took a course at the range where they had you bring in a couple hundred rounds, learn some basic weapon safety. That's really good. 
Then you see this course advertised for new firearms owners. Go over some weapon safety. You're going to work on drawing from the holster, some self-defense shooting, how to be safe with it in your home, how to engage a target if you need to. All these things that focus around self-defense of the firearm. You have an instructor who's a career special operations guy. He's gone to war, killed some folks, perhaps even trained people. Over here, you got another guy that was a career police officer, law enforcement. He worked in a big city for 10 years. Then he worked as a deputy sheriff for 10 years. And those are the credentials. I would dig into it further, but on the surface, based on what the description is I said I'm looking for, the cop would make more sense. They have dealt directly with those situations. They understand some of the legal implications. They have been to court and testified for or against situations. They have shown up and investigated these activities, whether at home, out in public, or on the road. There are questions and ideas they can bring to the table much more likely than the soldier can. Does that mean the soldier's training is bad? No, it does not. But if you know there's questions and scenarios you want answers to, and you know you want to get a little bit more knowledge out of it than just what's listed in the description, the cop's probably the better way to go in this scenario. You want to go learn how to use a tourniquet. Great, it's a medical device. You've got a soldier over here who was a medic, somewhere in the military, deployed several times, been in combat, had to save people's life, used tourniquets, right? And that's what he does now. Over here, you have a paramedic. This soldier guy, he's not paramedic qualified, but this guy's now a paramedic. He's been working in an ambulance for about 10 years. He's dealt with a lot of things paramedics deal with, and he's teaching a class about tourniquets. If you don't know much, logically, I would probably go with the soldier in this situation. He's probably used tourniquets many times and trained people how to use them. He's going to have experience. It's not that the paramedic won't, but it's more likely that the soldier in combat has used that tourniquet far more times than the paramedic has. Now, there's always going to be individual things. I'm just saying, when you're looking at your classes and you're looking at your instructors, what is their experience that applies to your needs for that class? Because essentially, they're both teaching the same skill. They both have a credible background. They both have experience we're looking for. And this translates to any other industry. What is the person's level of education? What is their practical experience? How does it directly apply? If somebody's advertising you, hey, here's the skill you want to learn, they should be able to tell you their exact practical experience to that skill. If they're listing off this long, wonderful resume, that's great if it's like the general bio of the site. But if they're like, I know how to do this best because I have this wonderful resume and here's three paragraphs, right? Okay, how much of that three paragraphs though actually relates to that skill? Because that's the only part that's going to matter. All that extra stuff is unnecessary. The other thing is, what's their training experience? It's great if people have companies or some sort of educational institution where they teach people some knowledge or skill and they've been doing it for five years. That's wonderful. They've been doing this for five years. They're still in business. It's probably a good thing. What's their experience prior to that? You know, there's guys that get out of the military that were in the conventional military, conventional army that teach classes or just like guys that were cops for two or three years and they teach classes on 
while I hate these terms, would be considered more advanced weapons training, more advanced tactical skills. And I just want to cringe when I see it because they do not know what they're doing. And sometimes it's very unsafe. Their experience is going to a couple classes, maybe training a few soldiers. Or for the law enforcement guy, did some law enforcement stuff for a few years, maybe contracted overseas for a year, and then he's trained a few civilians. Okay, then you get a guy in this situation who's a career special operations guy, who's one of his primary missions is to train foreign troops. And they'll probably tell you who they've trained. I've trained troops in this country, in this country, in this country. Why is that a benefit to you? One of the hardest things for an instructor to do is to communicate. People have different leadership styles and you exude those and exhibit them when you train people. And the more leadership experience you have, especially in training, the more you're not only, I would say, qualified, but the more experience you have in crossing the different types of leadership styles and the different types of training methods to where while teaching a group of, say, 20 people, at the same time, you can also teach specifically to one person, which is better. These guys that have trained people around the world or even if they haven't trained them around the world, they've trained people in this country of different age groups, and they have 10, 20 years of experience, have experienced things and gotten past hurdles that other people haven't. For example, training and teaching children is different than training and teaching adults. Different ways you have to talk to them, different levels of education, different types of words they use, just the generational gap and the way people use slang. When you go and train people overseas, one of the things I ran into, doesn't matter how well you speak a language, it's not good enough typically, and you need an interpreter, and that slows things down. Then these guys, you find out they're adults, but here's their culture. Here's their level of discipline. Here's their level of training knowledge, which is typically zero. Oh, and they all are very not highly educated. Most of them would be, at best, third to fifth graders in America. Nothing against them. But that changes the dynamic of how you have to teach and train. That makes it easier for this guy to come and have a class on the tourniquet, we'll say, and 20 people show up. You got a couple of teenagers, a couple of 10-year-olds, a couple of people in their 60s that are retired. You got a couple of people that don't know these skills at all, but they're highly educated. You got a couple of people over here that aren't highly educated. And you have all these different cultural differences and you have to communicate to all of them at the same time and individually to get that point across, not to slow down training and to make it more effective. That's where the experience comes in. So the point to that to say is, yeah, it's great to see the resume, but the resume isn't all there is. The credibility is what have they actually done. It's great to learn cool new things, like say aquaponics, there's colleges that give those classes out or charge small fees here locally where I'm at. We go learn about aquaponics and guys that are making money at it and they're training people all over the country and they can show you how to do all this stuff. And I think it's very beneficial. There's also guys that teach that stuff. that did it on their own, learned it on their own, have gone some of those classes, gone through the hangups and the issues that people run into naturally and built it at their house and are willing to show you about it. I don't know that either one of those in this scenario is better than the other. But I tell you what, there's a huge benefit to having that extra knowledge that professional in this situation doesn't necessarily have about, look, I'm at my house and I set this up two years ago. Here's all the issues I ran into. Here's the best places to buy things. Here's why this didn't work in our climate. There are benefits to people's varied experiences. The other thing, too, is when you find companies 
especially going on to like the whole preparedness subject, companies that have three, four, five instructors or 20 instructors, and they're not all the same. They all have different backgrounds, different levels of experience, different industries. They're all career professionals. And especially when a lot or most of them reached a typical amount of experience that would equal retirement, meaning 15 to 20 years in their field, and then either did something else or came to do this training experience. That's a lot of experience. The knowledge you're getting from an instructor isn't the put tab A into slot B, touch this here, screw this this way. It's not that stuff. There's a lot of people that can teach those things. It's their experience, their practical experience and knowledge, and their experience in training people that'll be more noticeable when you take the class. That's what's really going to help you. You know, an example I'll use is the human intelligence course in the Army. Half the training there is on interrogation. I used to have the lovely pleasure of telling people less than 10% of you will ever interrogate one time, let alone for an entire deployment or as a career. That's just the way the ball bounces and how the assets play out. And then after having that discussion, one of the things we realized that that level of training in the military, almost anybody can teach it. The way it's designed, it doesn't take a lot of practical experience to teach the required material to get people certified through that training. And there's not as many questions that come up with younger, brand new students, but they are there. And you find out that one of the things you don't have is experienced interrogators or people ever done it. Sometimes you have other personality issues too. What they cannot do for those students is essentially mentor them while training with their experience, given the opportunity to ask these more specific or isolated questions or asking scenario-based questions or understanding how this works or that works or how does this approach technique translate in the booth? And they can't answer it because at the end of the day, they were only in the Army four years and they never interrogated and probably didn't deploy. That's something to consider. Unfortunately, Army can't really address that. But when you take your training, you can. Who is this guy or this woman? How long have they been doing this? What's this experience here? Like, I rode a horse once as a kid. If I ever wanted to go learn to ride horses now, it would be cool to go to a place like an adventure horse thing and get a one-hour class on a horse and ride it around a little bit and then go on a little trail. That'd be fun for like a one-day weekend adventure thing. But if I really wanted to get into riding horses, I wouldn't do that. I'd rather go to a place where somebody was raised around them, has horses on a ranch, works with them every day. That person can probably teach and share more knowledge and experience and things that are going to help me than that professional that has more of that adventure day camp. Nothing wrong with the adventure day camp. Just if I want to learn how to ride horses, that's not where I want to go. If I want to go ride horses for a day or two and have fun, that's absolutely where I want to go. That goes back to the first question. Why are you learning this skill? Why is it important to you? And what do you want to get out of it? Right? There's guys that want to go learn tactical training, we'll call it. Well, that's fine if you want to do that. One good thing to that, there is a lot of fun adventure stuff for that. That's a day or two long. We have some in Arizona. There's well-known ones in Vegas where you have people chasing you like zombies and you get to go do that stuff or people used to do paintball or airsoft. There's all kinds of those things. Where, and they teach you some, in some cases, some small amount of military tactics. If you're doing that to kind of get the idea if this is something you want to learn more about or you just want to go have fun, that's great. Those things are great for that. But don't get the illusion that all of a sudden 
you're a soldier or a SWAT team member. Okay, that's a whole other animal. There's a reason why a lot of those guys that can do that stuff and teach it don't teach it that often or teach it very much at all and why it costs so much money. It takes a lot. It's exhausting in a lot of situations. It takes a lot of training. And it's who are you and why do you want to learn this? Because people can misuse that stuff. People think they can go spend a day or two and do something that looks like tactical training and all of a sudden they're a Navy SEAL. That's just not the case. Guys at that level, the government has spent millions of dollars training them and years doing it. You're not going to get that experience. Not unless you join the military. The point to all this is to say that when you look at training, you want to know, here's what I want to learn. Here's why I want to learn it. Right? And then you look for the classes. You find out there are classes available for that subject. What do you want to get out of that class? That's what you want to know, right? Good. Then after that, when you start scrutinizing these schools or companies, what you really need to look at is not how much money they're worth, not how cool they look and whatever they got or how cool their tools and toys are. Who are they? What is their experience training other people? How long have they been doing it? What kinds of people have they trained in this skill? After that, what's their real-world experience in using this skill? How much have they really done it? I'll give you an example. I teach the U.S. Army map reading course, entire map reading course, and sometimes run land navigation courses. I've seen people teach far less map reading courses for that, charging two, $300, which I think is a crime. That's just me. I've also had to use things like a map and compass dismounted in operational environments in July in Iraq with 100 pounds of gear like a moron walking fucking forever, and it sucked. And there are people that can teach those skills, but if you were going to learn that, map reading, I'd want to know where they learned it, how many times they taught the class, what's their land navigation experience, because there's going to be land navigation questions. Have they taken more advanced orienteering and land navigation courses, especially in the military? Are they in a job that requires you to go through that training? Have they used it in a real-world environment? Those are the types of things you'd want to know. Another thing to look at. Some of the uh, more adorable people I've ran into, their credentials are not what they've done, but who trained them. Now, that's not always a bad thing. I mean, let's let's this is unrealistic, but let's look at it this way. You decide you want to learn about music. We'll just make it that simple. You want to learn about music. And you meet a guy who's teaching music. And he tells you how he was trained by Mozart. We're assuming this can actually happen. I was trained by Mozart. I was trained for 10 years by Mozart. If you don't know about Mozart, look him up. But arguably a very highly trained and skilled musician from a long time ago. But yeah, trained by Mozart. Here's the concerts this guy's done. Here's the pieces this guy's written. They're used by these symphonies. This is really good. This sounds really good. And here's the thing. That's not a bad thing. In the world of martial arts, there's a lot of great instructors that were trained by other great instructors. It's just with the age gap or those guys have died. That's that's how it works. But in this situation, we'll say Mozart's still alive. right? But you can't get Mozart's booked. But this guy was trained by Mozart. And he's written symphonies. and They're being played at the Nutcracker or some whatever, right? Got this wonderful resume. Sounds real good. 
but you have one other guy you want to go meet first and you go meet this guy and you hear his name and you look up his name and you find out this guy trained Mozart. Well, a musical genius trained the first guy and the other guy trained somebody how to be a musical genius. I don't know about you, but I'd go with the second guy. That's why I say, what is their experience? What impact have they had on that community for what they're doing? Who have they trained? Who have they taught? What did those people become? There's something about that second guy that not only knew a skill, but had mentorship and leadership skills that helped change this person or definitely impact their path to be a genius, who then has passed that on. And there's nothing wrong with that first guy. In fact, if it came down to money, take the first guy, because that sounds like a really great option. But if you could choose, pick the guy that created the genius. Don't pick the guy that learned from a genius. Now, I've done more stuff on training. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. If I can find specifically in the timestamp, I'll put it in the show notes. Just remember, here's what you want to learn. Why do you want to learn it? What do you want to get out of that training? And then who's teaching you? Okay, the names of the companies aren't that important. Money can be a factor. The reason, especially the subject I'm talking about, the reason the classes cost as much as they do is because there's a market for it. That market has grown in the last 10 years. People will pay the money. That's why the prices are out there. And for almost anything you want to look on the subject of firearms or preparedness, any price you find, there's somebody that charges considerably more. So as long as money's not an issue, we're taking that out of the argument. What do you want to learn? Why do you want to learn it? What do you want to get out of it? And then your instructor. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that can teach you with a YouTube video and a little practice how to do what looks like and very well could be the proper application of a tourniquet on a limb. The thing is you don't realize is that's all they can do. They can't tell you how many tourniquets an actual operation unit carries. All soldiers get issued one, but operational teams carry three, four, five per individual usually. They can't necessarily tell you what it looks like when arterial blood comes out. They can't necessarily tell you exactly how much pressure. They just say pressure. They don't know the evolution and design of the different types of tourniquets and that there sometimes are even more than one and how they work and who can use them and which ones are better and why because some are better. They may not be able to tell you how to identify a fake tourniquet to make sure that when you spend 30 bucks on a cat tee that you're not buying a fake one that's only worth five bucks and it'll probably get you killed. Now, granted, that sounds extreme, but that's why I picked subjects that your life could matter. But wouldn't that be the same for you if you wanted to go to an art school and learn how to paint? You know, do you want to learn from the student of Van Gogh or do you want to learn from the guy that taught Van Gogh how to be Van Gogh? Do you just want to know how to apply the brush strokes? Or do you want to understand the different smells and tones of the paints? How to use the different types of paints, whether it's water, acrylic, and oil. How to use the different types of canvases and materials you can paint on. How to be creative. How to understand art. That's where the experience plays in. Experience is everything. So it's not just what education do they have, what certifications do they have. is where did they get it and what experience do they have in that? And don't worry about the diplomas or certificates you get. Those are great and fun, and it's nice to have those as 
marked measurements of achievement and success. The only time they really matter is if you're taking training that matters to your industry to complement your job. So for example, somebody that works in say private security, they want to go take a class on how to learn how to use handcuffs. Plenty of places can teach you how to do that, but your state laws will dictate what training you need that actually counts as certification in order for you to use that device on the job. That's when those things matter in the official realm. Unofficially, I think they're great and people should get them from any training. People love that stuff. So if you've got questions, more specifics, let me know. If you do actually have a subject, something you want to learn, and you're in a specific area of the country, let me know and I'll try to narrow you down the best I can in any of these subjects and fields and let you know where training might be available near you or when it can be coming to you as I'm familiar with a lot of the schools and institutions that teach firearms, weapons training, as well as most preparedness subjects outside of anything dealing with livestock or gardening. Definitely not my forte. Also, just to let you know, added onto my list, I've been doing some studying and looking for old notes just due to current events and Iran popping up in the news. People ask about Iran. Some people are asking about the nuclear deal. How did or did we not actually back out of it with a new president? What's going to change there? So I am might do a show on the Iran nuclear deal. What it was at the time, what it was there for, understanding the non-proliferation treaty, how that affects us today and what that really means. Biggest reason? Almost everything I see on it that's not an officially well-researched article is very misleading or people greatly misunderstand. So that's something I'm working on. Don't know how long it'll take me. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check the show notes. Check out DMR Publications and the Disagreeable Thoughts and Philosophies of DMR Publications, their podcast on Anchor, and probably on any platform you're listening to me on, they're there as well. See what notes we put in for this show and... My email is down there if you want to contact me, shoot me a question. We'll have another show for you soon right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight.